All right. A couple of announcements. Um, the Camperete garage sale to raise money for the transportation of kids from here to Tennessee. Uh, that's where it's going to be this year, not in Colorado. That is starting tomorrow from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. tomorrow and Saturday. And then we're planning a baptismal service that will be, we now have a date um, tentatively, but um, the only thing I have left to do is secure a place. But what we're working on is July 9th. There's three adults and two kids. And so that's Sunday, July 9th is what we're working on, and now I've got to get a place to do it. Or if anybody has a large water tank or plastic pool, wading pool, that'll work too, as long as it's deep enough, okay? That's that. Then we're looking at uh, May 20th. May 20th, it's a Saturday night that will be for... um, a fellowship dinner here at the church. Instead of doing it after church on Sunday, we can do a a movie. We'll try to find something also we can show the kids at the same time. And the uh, film that we're going to show is God is Not Dead 1. Now, if you got a chance, and I know several of you told me you did, to go see The Case for Christ, that's sort of exhibit A in, in homework for understanding apologetics. And then God is Not Dead 1 is going to be assignment number 2, extracurricular work for uh, understanding apologetics. This is uh, really important. I've got some interesting things to cover tonight and also, again, next week, talking a little bit about the case for Christ when we get there and uh, and that. So I uh, today I'm hoping we'll maybe answer a few questions that I raised last time. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord. Uh, use 1 John 1, nine if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we have to gather together, to fellowship around your word, to be encouraged by the presence of other believers, and to uh, learn more from your word, think through your word in terms of being able to fulfill the mandate of of, uh, 1 Peter 3.15, to be able to give an answer for the hope that is in us. Father, we pray that as we study and as we think that you'll help us to Uh, work our way through some things, sometimes a little more difficult, sometimes not so much, but to understand uh, what's involved in being able to effectively give an answer. Effective not in the sense of producing results, but effective in terms of being biblical and sound in our answers. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, go ahead and just open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, where we'll get into some things there in a little bit. 
We are studying this topic of giving an answer, otherwise known as apologetics. Apologetics is, is, comes from the Greek word apologeo, which means to make a reasoned defense. In other words, to be able to give an organized, rational answer to someone who asks question related to why you believe what you believe. And um, so tonight we're going to look again at this issue of facts as God created them because it's very important no matter how you approach apologetics this is critical evidence or facts is critical in the entire process so we looked at these questions what is apologetics number one defining it it is giving a reasoned rational answer in grace in humility in kindness not in an argumentative, nasty, try-to-win-an-argument kind of way. Why should we learn about apologetics? Because whether we like it or not, Scripture commands that we be able to give an answer for the hope that is in us. That implies that we have to learn how to do it and what to say. We have to learn these the, the information. And... And it's not something you just go out and you learn it and you do it. It's it's It'll take a whole lifetime. You talk to anybody, it's, and it's a part of witnessing. And you talk to anybody who is uh, engaged actively in witnessing or in the field of apologetics, and they'll tell you that it's one thing to talk about what it is and what it should be and how to do it. It's another thing to learn it because it's a, it's a skill and it's related to wisdom. And how many times have you heard me say that wisdom in the Bible isn't the Greek concept of, of a philosophical wisdom. It is doctrine in practice. It is the skillful application of the Word of God. And I've got a great example of something that just happened this last week that is a challenge to all of us as to how this this skill, this wisdom works. So we're to learn about apologetics because the Bible says so. And third, why do some people object to apologetics? And that, as I pointed out, is usually out of ignorance. Usually it's out of our misunderstanding of what apologetics is, or they they've heard somebody say, that apologetics is done this way, and they say, well, that's not really biblical, I don't think, so they reject the whole idea. Fifth question, what's the difference between apologetics and Christian evidences? We really haven't gotten to five or six yet. We're still on the fourth question, and this uh, objection that is raised, which is, the Bible doesn't use apologetics, why should we? And so I've been showing uh, biblically, and going to continue to walk through the scripture and just think about it, that apologetics is inherent to everything in scripture if we properly understand apologetics. Uh, part of apologetics is to prove the other side is wrong. And as one person put it, uh, that's sort of like poking the other side in the eye. And that's exactly if you it, what the scripture does. If we were 14th century B.C. people, Egyptians, Hittites, um, Mesopotamians, whatever, Canaanites, we would be really offended reading the Bible, reading the Genesis, because so much of it is simply that. It's not only asserting what God did, but by asserting that God and God alone is the creator and he's the only God, that's that's 
a, a challenge that is offensive to those who truly believe in multiple gods and that their creation myths were accurate. And it is, um, it, for, from their viewpoint, in today's terms, it would be politically incorrect. And uh, we'll see this again and again uh, in Scripture. Now, as we talk about apologetics, I keep coming back to this chart because this helps us understand some of the debates and issues that are going on among apologists, among theologians, among pastors about what is the biblical way to do it. We have to understand a couple of things. There is the right content, and this really isn't a debate about content, because all of these guys believe for the most part, I mean, the major thinkers believe in the inerrancy and fallibility of Scripture. They believe in the authority of the Word of God. They are uh, grounded in, in Scripture. They all believe in the use of evidences. They all believe in the f historical facts and logic and all of these things. But they differ in how they think and how they believe these things should be done. And so that comes to method. Now, one reason this is really important is because it not only applies to how you are interacting with a non-Christian, but it applies to just about anything in life. We often have heard the principle stated that a right thing must be done in a right way. A right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. And you can witness to somebody the wrong way. You can witness to somebody when you're out of fellowship. That's the wrong way. You can witness to somebody, and you can, uh, you can just throw Bible verses at them. That's the wrong way. You can witness to somebody, and you can tell them that they need to invite Jesus into your heart. Use Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's not a salvation verse. That is a relational it's a fellowship verse written to a church it's really clear because two verses earlier it says that these written to those whom god loves and uses the uh, greek word phileo which god only uses of believers god does not have phileo type love for unbelievers only those in the family so it's really very very clear and yet you have organizations like campus crusade for christ for one uh, i think cef to some degree for another and many others who use that as a salvation verse. Now, are people saved that way? Sure they are. Because God the Holy Spirit is able to take really sloppy uh, witnessing, you know, at gospel ex presentations and use them to help people understand the truth of God's Word and they believe in Jesus, even though they're told you have to pray a prayer in order to be saved. Well, Scripture doesn't say that. Scripture says, believe. Now, prayer is a telling God, I believe. But guess what? God is omniscient. If you pray at 10.01, Lord, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. At 10 o'clock, you had already believed it, and God knew it, and you were saved. He doesn't wait for you to tell him because God knows what you believe. So that's a sloppy gospel presentation. There are a lot of sloppy gospel presentations. You've done it, I've done it, and uh, but God the Holy Spirit is the sovereign executive in evangelism, and so he makes these things clear. And our responsibility, though, is to try to the best of our ability to not make sloppy gospel presentations. 
we have to keep honing those skills and that's part of our maturing and growing up well I pointed out in this chart that just as in uh, philosophy has broken knowledge down into four categories rationalism empiricism mysticism and revelation just as we have those attempts where people think that all truth is discovered solely by reason those are called rationalists then you have others who say no we're born with it like Aristotle did uh, we we're born with an empty slate a tab tabula rasa and so everything is written on that from our experience uh, what we see what we hear what we taste touch it's all experiential mystics think that no we we come to this knowledge through um, intuitive insights now each has a as I pointed out each of those three has a counterpart in an apologetic methodology I'm not saying that a that a classic apologist is a pure rationalist but there's an affinity there and same thing with an evidentialist I'm not saying that he's a pure empiricist but there's an affinity there because both within classic apologetics and evidential apologetics there is a uh, a tendency to treat either logic or facts and history and science as being a totally neutral area of knowledge and we keep coming back to this Romans 1 we'll hit it again tonight more later on that that which is known about God is evident within them because God made it evident to them okay it's the knowledge of God so everything boils down to how do you know God exists and how do you know how to have eternal life and how to have a relationship with God so it's all based on knowledge that's why we keep coming back to this um, another thing that, that I, I want to point out here is that uh, this doesn't when, when, the term evidentialism um, unfortunately some of these terms are terms that, that have been adopted over the years you can't change them evidentialism doesn't mean that that school that group uses evidences and nobody else does it's how they use the evidences it's do they treat the evidences as neutral or do they come to the evidence uh, and not compromise their biblical presuppositions in the way they handle evidence and I'll talk about that more that gets a little abstract and I understand that and and I want to encourage you that if you've never heard this most of you haven't if you've never heard anybody talk about this before it's a wow there's a lot here I can't understand it well knowledge is accumulated through the process of confusion whenever you go and learn something new there's a point at the beginning where you're a little disoriented you're a little confused you never heard it before it's all new information I'm a little confused as you hear it over and over and over again a concept teachers call repetition it finally begins to make sense and over a period of time one day the light goes on so you have to hear this again and again and again and it'll become clear to you trust me 
when I first started getting into this and reading about this, which was before I went to seminary, I read certain books like Evidence That Demands a Verdict and a couple of other books, Know Why You Believe, and I understood the basic evidences. But then when I became exposed to the fact that apologetics was much more than just evidences but had to do with strategy, oh, now we're in a whole new ballgame. And I would read and read and read. And some of these guys are really difficult to read. Uh, Van Til is, I had a conversation today with Bruce Baker. We were talking about this. He said, boy, you've got to have at least a pot of coffee before you can start reading Van Til in the morning. And he just, I said, well, you ought to listen to him talk. I've got a whole bunch of lectures on audio I've listened to over the years. And he just talks stream of consciousness. And there are professors like that. They don't organize their notes. They just get up there and start talking because they process verbally. And I'm a little bit like that. And and so things occur to me while I'm talking and everything. That's why Tommy Ice and I used to, back in the days when we actually had a long-distance bill, remember those days? Tommy Ice and I would rack up $200 long-distance bills apiece in the 80s. Because we'd get on the phone for an hour or an hour and a half talking through all this stuff because we're both verbal processors. And so that would help us to to come to understand things. All pastors need battle buddies they can do that with because it helps hone your hone your thinking. So we I talked about rationalism, empiricism, mysticism, and fideism is the idea that, that evidence is not, not only don't pay attention to evidence, it's not necessary. You just believe. That's all it is. It's pure subjectivism and is comparable to mysticism. And then the fourth category that I'm calling revelational apologetics is more commonly called presuppositional apologetics, which is a good term, but I, that, that's a little bit unwieldy for some people. But it presuppose, it's not that the others don't presuppose the truth of Scripture. In presuppositionalism, there's the desire to consistently presuppose the truth of Scripture, especially when you're talking to an, an, an unbeliever. You're not going to let them change the terms uh, on you in, in, the, uh, in, in the process. Great illustration of this. If... Uh, you got a rattlesnake on the ground, and an eagle wants to kill the rattlesnake. Is the eagle going to get on the ground and battle the rattlesnake on the ground? No. He's going to change the terms of the argument and take the rat- and pick up the rattlesnake and take him in the air where he doesn't have any any leverage or any ground, and where he's in the uh, eagle's domain. That is what presuppositionalism tries to do: is to Make sure that the whole playing field is set by Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean you're telling the other person any of this. It has to do with your mentality and how you are approaching and using the evidence. And it takes takes time to do that. So back to this diagram. We're over here as the Christian missionary. And you think of this analogy take going into the rainforests of Brazil or going into Africa coming to our, our Irian Jaya and you're talking to a culture that doesn't have, has never heard Jesus, never heard God, isn't monotheistic, maybe they're animist, spiritist, something like that, and they need to hear the gospel. So before you can really communicate to them, you have to understand where they're coming from. 
That means that a missionary is going to go through a process of asking a lot of questions before they ever get to the point of talking to the person about Jesus. And that's important. We're going to see this is a God's methodology. Genesis 3, Job, other places. God begins by asking asking questions. I got a great illustration we'll talk about today of a week, something that happened just this last week that uh, illustrates that. Now, we live in a world today where that pagan aborigine that's our neighbor isn't quite so much of an aborigine as he is a postmodern millennial who thinks very differently from the way that you and I do. And he's had less of an impact from modernist thinking which is pagan also, but he's had less of influence from modernist thinking than he has from postmodern relativism. And, and a lot of times older people or Christians don't understand, how, you know, these, they don't understand anything. There's this level of frustration. Well, you have to spend time talking to them. Now, not every one of them, but some of them. Uh, just like not every person is going to take 25 or 30 years to get them to the point where they'll listen to or understand the gospel. Some people are ready at the drop of a hat. Some people are not like a a triple PhD that you see uh, in a Discovery Channel special on Jesus. They're going to, they're, who, who rejects uh, the evidence of the resurrection. He doesn't say it's not historical. He doesn't say it doesn't happen. He says, sure, it happened. But anything can happen. In, in, because if you're talking to somebody who is totally within that academic intellectual environment, he's going to be fully aware of all of his assumptions and presuppositions. And he knows that what underlies his whole theory of life and everything is pure chance. So he's going to be consistent with that, and he's going to say, sure, uh, Jesus lived and he rose from the dead, but that doesn't mean what you say it means. See, it's interpretation. He is reinterpreting a historical fact, and I talk, I, I, we'll talk a little bit more about that. So we have to understand something about the other person. Are they hearing what we're saying to them? When we talk about God, what is coming up in their mind? If you're talking to somebody with a Hindu background, they've got two or three hundred gods, and you're going to tell them about Jesus. Well, they're just going to take your Jesus and put him on the shelf. And so you have to make sure that you're talking about the biblical God. When you look at these arguments for the existence of God, like the argument from, from design, well, that's a great, uh, great as far as it goes. But when you get to the great designer, is that Yahweh Elohim, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or is this just somebody who is a uh, great designer? You know, the, the design, argument from design doesn't necessarily get you to the God of the Bible. It just gets to some kind of deity. Well, we, we're not trying to get people to the understanding that there can be a God, but that the God of the Bible is the only God that's there. So... We have to figure out how to communicate. And so in this diagram, I said, here we are in the first, these first two or three illustrations I'm going to use in Genesis 1 and 3. The God is speaking to man. What common ground is he using? Is he referring to history? Is he talking about logic? Is he talking about uh, experience? Um, what effect does sin have on these fallen human beings, on their thinking? 
Are they neutral? No. So um, what's the common ground? Is it the image of God? God made them in his image. Is that the common ground? Is it the Romans 1, 18 and following that, that, the, uh, that, that God's invisible attributes are clearly seen from what he made so that his uh, uh, omnipotence and his personhood, because it's using the pronoun his, his personhood, all of his power, his majesty are all self-evident externally to every human being and internally they know it because God made it evident within them. So that's what we're thinking through. So we looked at examples from Genesis 1 in the creation account because Moses is writing this under inspiration of Scripture to uh, the Jews who are been living in paganism, although they have been kept apart. They've been living in Egypt, and so he's writing this. So it's a polemic against Egyptian uh, cosmology. It's a, uh, a polemic against Canaanite uh, uh, cosmology, because they're getting ready to go into Canaan. It's a polemic against Mesopotamia. That's why you get scholars coming up with it's one or the other. It's all of them. And God is such a multitasker in Revelation that's also a, an argument against uh, Darwinian evolution. Any view of creation other than God's view in Genesis 1 is contradicted by Genesis 1. So we looked at this. Point one was that God's speaking to pagan cultures who are have suppressed. They've come along and they have said that, no, 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 there's no creator God out there. See the water over there in the Nile? That God created us. And that there's a sky God. See the sky? There's a sky God that that created us. And, and they have all these deities. Each one did everything. See, these are the gods who produce fertility, everything. So they're suppressing God and replacing him with some other story. So how do you communicate to people who have done that? Do you start by proving that God exists? Romans 1 argues that no. You start by trying to expose then their thinking that they already understand that God exists. So I looked at the second point, which is that God creates everything, establishing the point that every little, everything down to submolecular, subatomic particles are all created by God. And because God created them, every molecule has his fingerprint. So that if Romans 1 says that everything in the universe tells us about the power and the majesty of God, then God created everything. He created this wood. He created this avocado so that this avocado screams the creator God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Every molecule in here does that. So we're going to talk about, last week I talked about apples, so I want to talk about avocados tonight. Now, is that a fruit or vegetable? Yes. Yes. How postmodern of you. No, it's a it's a fruit, because a fruit has a seed on the inside and a vegetable has a seed on the outside. See what you learned today? It's close to being a berry, but I don't understand all those finer distinctions. That's beyond my pay grade. So Exodus 29 through 11, six days God made everything. That doesn't leave out anything. So that's important. The God who is, as it were, sitting back there in eternity past going, how am I going to do this? Well, I want everything to tell everybody about who I am. 
So he figures out a way to encode that into the DNA and, uh, and the molecular and atomic structure of everything. That's That helps us to understand that Romans 1 is... You can't understand Romans 1 without Genesis 1. You can't understand Genesis 1 without... The whole Bible has to hang together. So the first development of that was my point that everything, every star, planet, rock, mineral, substance, animal, bird, fish, etc., tells us about God. Every, and that means that everything, every fact, whether the fact is this is an avocado, or the fact is if you eat from that tree, you're going to die... Or the fact is, Jesus rose from the dead. Every fact is what it is because God created it to be so. That means when people come along, like, like for example, this isn't the same avocado that an evolutionist looks at. We look at it and we can say, well, it has rough skin, so that means it's a Haas avocado. There's a lot of different varieties of avocados, but this is the one most popular in the U.S. You have smooth skin. You have really big ones. When I grew up, the next-door neighbor had a fruit wholesale business. He would bring over these avocados, the seed of which was bigger than this avocado. There are avocados that are enormous, and they were smooth-skinned, and they were a little lighter on the inside. So you have all kinds of different, but they're all avocados. God creates the kinds, and this avocado, no matter what you do to it, it's never going to be an apple. It's never going to be a blackberry. It's always going to be an avocado. And so it is what it is, not because it just happens to be that way, it is what it is because God determined it to be what it is. That's, that's, that's the fact. So I talked about that last time. Every fact is what it is because God, and that has huge implications for thought and for knowledge and for how we can know what we know because God made it so that we can understand it and he encoded this into the structure of everything. So that led to a second observation that a corollary to this is the is that facts are what they are because God created them to be what they are. So as creatures communicating about God's facts, we cannot be ambiguous about them or lack total confidence in them. In other words, when we're looking at the facts of creation, that's what evidentialists do. We can't slip out of our divine viewpoint framework and say, well, we're going to use this argument. It's going to show you that this is the most probable case. And evidentialists will clearly say that, that all their arguments get you is the highest level of probability. But the Bible doesn't tell us that we've got a high probability of God's existence in Romans 1, 19 and following, but that they definitely know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator God of Genesis 1, is alive, he's eternal, he has majesty, but they reject him and they don't want to honor him as God. So what we learn from this is that facts aren't neutral. Now God created a fact in the garden. And that fact was that there was one tree that if Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate from it, they would die spiritually. That is part of everything that could be known about whatever that fruit was. It was not an avocado. It was probably, it was not an apple. Somebody said it's probably a pomegranate. Who knows? I'll choose an avocado. But if they looked at that, if they ate it, then they would die spiritually. 
that was part of the facts about that. But they couldn't know that through experience. They couldn't observe it. They couldn't smell it, taste it, touch it. They could, they could sit down with an observation notebook and catalog it with 500 pages of observations, and they would never come up with what that really was. Because the most important fact was something that had to come from revelation. That's why, keeps, that's why when we talk about using evidence and facts, whether it's reason or logic with the classical apologist or whether it is an, uh, evidence with an evidentialist, don't treat the evidence as if it's neutral because the facts in God's creation, we know, are not neutral. They are what they are because God made them that way and they tell us who God is. So we can't be ambiguous or lack total confidence in them. Therefore, things are what they are because God determined them. God ultimately defines facts and their meaning, not man. Think about that. When you talk to an unbeliever they'll, and you start talking about facts, they'll say, well, and then they, they waffle and say, well, it can mean different things. No, it can't mean different things. We can't say, oh, yeah, you're right. It can mean different things, but, but this is what is the most probable meaning. See, as soon as you've done that, you've slipped over. Now you're arguing from their human viewpoint premise, and you're doing the right thing the wrong way. <clears throat> so God ultimately defines meaning in language because he originated language. So language is just as much a part of creation as any other fact. So the very idea, and I ended with this last week, and we were getting up there, and people were, were their brains were starting to smoke, uh, that, that language itself can't function if we don't presuppose the existence of the God of the Bible. And that's why evolutionists can't explain the origin, the, the origin of language. So my point here was that all knowledge is ultimately, all human knowledge is ultimately derivative of his knowledge. That's why we have to look at knowledge that way. This isn't just some, one plus one isn't equals two, isn't just some something in creation that we discovered. It's something that's inherent to the thinking of God from eternity past. And that it is what it is because, only because the God of the creator God of the Bible guarantees that that's what it is. Now, that starts getting heavy. I'm, I've got an illustration of this for you. So this is why God, as truth, can define truth. That's why it's so important when Jesus says, I am the truth. Twice he says that. I am the way, the truth, and the, the, I am the, way, the, truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Well, twice he says life. But he says, I am the truth. And he says, thy word is truth in John 17. God, it can only be truth because that's what's in God's head. And that's what makes it true is because he created it to be true. See how all of this relates. And if you, you know, we could spend a couple of hours going off into why this is the foundation for understanding inerrancy. If we don't uh, assume inerrancy, presuppose inerrancy to be true, then we really don't know what's true at all. That's why we have to trust the Bible. It's, it's radical. So we looked at Genesis, I mean, at Romans 1, talked about Romans 1 last time. We'll come back and take it apart a little bit. But what's interesting is on Friday mornings, just to give some real encouragement to some of you who are saying, you know, I'm ready to go home and watch whatever NCIS or whatever is on tonight. This is really abstract. 
on as most of you know on Friday mornings I have a group of anywhere from 15 to 20 plus probably a total of 25 pastors in all that can't all make it the same week and we start talking about apologetics about the same time that we did this and we've been going through and Charlie Clough's been part of it and also Bruce Baker who is uh past, you've heard, you, you all should remember Bruce he's the guy who's got the little goatee uh, he's spoken a couple of times at the Chafer Conference, wears bow ties, and he's been walking with a cane because he has something similar to Lou Gehrig's disease, and it's a neurological disease, and he's pretty much going to have to be in a uh, wheelchair before long. But he's got a great attitude, trust the Lord. But um, Bruce is part of it. And so we've been talking about these things. Now, Bruce has spent a lot of time studying this. I've spent a lot of time studying this. Charlie's spent a lot of time studying this. But there are guys in the group who have not ever studied this. And and you think you're lost in the weeds. They're lost in the weeds. Okay? So take heart. Here are guys who have THMs, but they never studied this. And it's it's challenging them as much as it's challenging you. So uh, it's a learning process for all of us. But Romans 1, 18 to 21 is a foundation for why we say everybody, no matter who you're talking to, they know God exists. They may have covered it up with as much junk as they can to hide it, to suppress it, to hold it down. But God is constantly going to be tweaking them. Now, one thing that came out last Friday morning when we had our, our session was Bruce was on. And we were talking about Romans 1, 18 to 21, and Bruce said, Hey, guys, I wrote an article on this for Bibliotheca Sacra. That's a Dallas Seminary Theological Journal almost 20 years ago, and you might want to read it. And I hadn't connected the dots because that came out in 98. I remember reading that article, but I didn't know Bruce, and I hadn't read anything else that Bruce had written at that time. And so I, I just read it and went, that was a really great article on Romans 1, 18 to 21, and I know it's influenced me over the years. But right at the end, we'll talk about bits and pieces of the passage, but at the end he has an interesting conclusion. He starts off saying that we're going to investigate why it is that all people around the world all have a religion, and all these religions uh, based on analysis by S.H. Kellogg, who was a, an anthropologist who wrote on world religions, they all have three or four things in common. And so at the end of the article, and one of the things they have in common, they all believe in a deity, they all believe that in some way we've made that deity mad and, we're, and there's some kind of problem between man and the deity or deities, and that something has to be done to resolve this. They all have generally those broad views. At the end, he says this. The investigation began by asking two questions. First, why are human beings universally religious with a common set of doctrines? Well, we'll talk about that later when we get to Romans 1, and I'll give you the quotes. He says, this study has argued that people everywhere are religious because they recognize the truth of God's existence. It's evident within them. Then he says... The fact that God exists and that he is eternally powerful is, in fact, foundational to knowledge. See, that's exactly what I I was saying last week. You can't really know this avocado unless you presuppose the knowledge of God. Because to really, truly know this avocado, if you don't know 
that it was created by God, you don't know the most important part, just as Eve is in the garden and she's looking at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that tree is what it is because God said so. The one important, most important thing about it was that if you eat it, you're going to die. The most important part wasn't how it looked or how it tasted or what health properties it might have. If you ate it, you were going to die spiritually. And see, this is exactly what happened is that in the dynamic of Genesis 3, she looks at it and it, it, it just all these things happen together as a unified part of that of her sin is she looks at it and she is putting herself in the place to define what the fruit is see that's how most of us think we think that we can define the facts that's how unbelievers are they think they can make the facts mean what they want them to mean that's how Satan works. He wants to be God. He wants to define facts the way he wants them to be. Eve wanted to determine, well, is this snake true or is God true? I'm the one who's going to be the arbiter of truth, and I'm going to determine you know, what the facts are. And this is the, inherently the problem with appealing to facts as if they're neutral is that's what Eve was assuming, is the fact is neutral. The fruit's neutral. I can determine it by my own thinking. And therein lies the fall. So the second thing we looked at was that this Genesis 1, it speaks to humans about what is and assumes that they can understand it. Now, that's really important because in a lot of these debates, and this relates spiritually, what can man, what can we understand and what can we not understand? And... A lot of presuppositionalists have come from a high Calvinist view with a strong doctrine of total depravity. And I've heard some some people say, well, you can't be a presuppositionalist because then you have to adopt a total uh, total inability view of sin like high Calvinism. That's not true. You just have to understand that sin affects knowledge. And so... Um, but does it affect knowledge to the degree that we can't understand anything about God? Well, Romans 1 doesn't say that. It says the knowledge of God is evident within them. So that means at some level, every human being can understand a certain amount of information about God to the extent that it makes them spiritually culpable so that they reject God so they are without excuse. The only way this can work is because God is outside of creation. He's not part of creation. In all your mythologies, God, everything in his being and part of being, including the deity, whether it's scientific myth, a, a scientific myth or whether it's a non-scientific myth, they all assume that the deity is part of the universe and all being, whereas the Bible says that everything apart from God is created by him. He is totally distinct or totally other. <clears throat> it also reveals that mankind is morally and spiritually accountable to the creator. The reason I make that point is when the, we look at these examples, we go to Romans 1, what we're going to see is that every human being knows at the core of his being that he is morally accountable to God. One of the things we do in explaining the gospel and in using evidence is, is to tweak that so that it 
it, it comes out of that, that part of the knowledge about this comes out of their, the cellar they've stuffed it in. And then fifth, I added this, that God determines what things are. That is, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is what it is because God made it so. Thus, knowledge of facts isn't neutral. When Adam sins, he's not neutral about God. What does he do? He runs and hides. There's no neutrality there. That's part of the assumption of the pagan mind is that all of creation is neutral in my, and I can approach it out of neutrality, and you can't. There's no such thing as neutrality. So what do we learn from Genesis 2? This is where I start, stopped last time looking at what happens. I, excuse me. Yeah, um, should, This should be what happens in Genesis 3. Uh, Satan challenges the divine viewpoint encoding of the creation Everything that what I mean by that is everything is what it is because God made it so and defines it, and He reinterprets it. Now the quote was a little unwieldy, so I changed it, modified a paraphrase. I said, in effect, what Ben Till is saying is, in effect, Satan contended. This is what he is in effect saying to Eve: facts and truth about their relationship to one another can be known by man. You can know what everything you need to know about that fruit. You can know it without getting any information about the facts from God as their maker and controller. See, that's what Satan is saying, is you can know capital truth, uppercase true truth, complete truth, without taking into account what God says about things. You can know what you, all you need to know about that fruit, and you don't need to hear anything from God about it. So therefore, what I'm saying is Satan is saying that fruit isn't what God said it is. So you see, you're, you're dealing with two God's conception of what that fruit is and what he made it to be, and the creature in rebellion is saying, no, it means something else. So that Eve on her part sets herself up as the arbiter to determine not only what the facts are, but what they mean. See, when you're talk- how many of us have had this experience? We're talking to an unbeliever, and you say something, and you know it's true, and they'll say, well, that's just your meaning. That's just what you want it to mean. But there's other interpretations. No, we can't allow that. Because it only means what God says it means. Now, that's going to come across bad. So let's look at Genesis 3. Move, moving the ball down a little bit. Genesis 3, and let's look at what happens after Adam has eaten the fruit. Verse, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them are opened. Eyes are usually used in Scripture to relate to knowledge. So there is something new in terms of their knowledge. There is something that they are now aware of that they were not aware of before. So the eyes of both of them were open. There is something's happened to the creature's knowledge because of sin. Now, I know there are people who are listening who are going to seminaries or whatever. The technical word for this is the noetic effects of sin, N-O-E-T-I-C, from the Greek word nous. And does sin affect man's reasoning ability? And to what extent does it affect man's reasoning 
ability and how corrupt is man's reasoning ability. Those are the issues there. So we see that there's a no, clearly a knowledge change. And what did they do? They knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So some time is going by, and they recognize now there's a problem. They do not have to be told there's a problem. Now they, they understand God does not reveal it to them. It is inherent within them, just like the knowledge of God is inherent within them in Romans 1. That, and, and the principle that we can derive from this is that every person you talk to knows they're a sinner, and they're trying to cover it up. That's what you see. Okay, you take the LGBTQ movement today. They're trying to cover up the fact that they know it's a sin. How are they trying to cover it up? Well, first they tried to get it, get the laws against them reversed. Then they tried to get it validated. Then they tried to get marriage between homosexuals legitimized. And then they're, they're going to start going after anybody who doesn't approve of what they're doing. All of that shows is that they know in their soul that what they're doing is wrong. But they're suppressing the truth about it in unrighteousness. So the unbeliever knows that he is a sinner. And, he, and uh, the verse goes on to say they sewed fig leaves together. So they're trying to solve the problem on their own. Man can't solve that problem on his own. And then verse 8. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, what's happening here? There in the garden, they know, oh, we have blown it. And there, there's something happening internally in terms of their knowledge that they know how exposed they are. And they're going to do what they can to try to fix it and cover it up. And so they've taken time to gather the fig leaves, sew them together, come up with a plan, you know, two or three hours maybe he's gone by or more. And then they hear God coming. They hear God coming. And there's an automatic reaction. They're afraid. See, the presence of God as a righteous, holy God strikes at the core of what it means to be a fallen creature. In the presence of God's righteousness, there's fear. And and they run and hide. So what we see is sort of the first point is that Adam and the woman already knew who God was and, and, and as sinners, and they hid themselves. God did not have to tell them who he was. It's it's evident they've already had the experience of being with God in the garden. They know who he is, and there's this automatic reflex as sinners to hide. What that tells us, point number two, is they were not morally or spiritually neutral. The unbeliever is not morally or spiritually neutral. So when you're having a discussion with somebody and they say, well, I just don't believe all that biblical stuff, you have to recognize when you use any kind of evidence and you talk about the truthfulness, the historicity of the Bible, they're not going to treat it from a neutral, objective vantage point. Their mind is fallen 
and they're going to immediately try to reinterpret that within their suppression narrative, whatever whatever that is. So uh, they hide themselves from the presence of, uh, of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then in verse 9, Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Now, this is really interesting. Does God know where they are? Sure, God knows where they are. He's omniscient. God knows exactly where they are. He's asking the question to get them to think about where they are and how they got there. See, by asking questions, we can use that to, with, without beating somebody over the head with a frying pan, we can get them to think about what they believe and why they believe it. And like Dr. Phil says, is that working for you? The questions are designed to expose ignorance and the inability of their suppression narrative to really solve their problems. Now, I got an interesting thing that happened this week. Some of you are familiar with the Cornwall Alliance. If you're not, you should be. It's headed up by a doctor uh, of history by the name of Cal Beisner. And uh, Charlie Clough is a very active member of the Cornwall Alliance, and they are writing and producing materials. They've got a DVD series about um, something about the Green Dragon, which is environmentalism. They are really presenting a biblical view of creation stewardship and producing a, a tremendous amount of scientific information about why global warming is not man-made and a number of other things that come out from the global warming people. Well, this last week he was to be uh, speaking to a group to the Illinois Family Institute in Rockford, Illinois. And on April the 13th, that organization received a threat to him. And it reads like this. You may believe that you're going to bring your hate group to Rockford without being called out for your despicable viewpoints. You couldn't be more wrong. It's a mistake to underestimate Rockford's political advocacy and the will of our majority. Your organization is not welcome in our community. Shining a bright light on such reprehensible and shallow thinking may cause an outpouring of people to attend your event. Attend in quotes because they want them to attend as protesters. It certainly will make the news. Feel the love. Okay? I want you to feel the love there. Think about that. So, this, then at the same time, a Cornwall supporter read in a local online newspaper uh, um, editorial designed to invite people to bring a sign to Beisner's talk and to help unmask Quote, to help unmask Calvin Beisner, whose group Masquerade is a legitimate independent group of pastors and religious leaders denying climate change. They're funded by big oil and longtime right-wing operatives with anti-science clergy support. Uh, Beisner will tell people to ignore the scientific fact that we humans are contributing to the climate change. Feel the love. Now, the way many of us will respond to something like that initially is, A, to be defensive, which he may have, and to react emotionally to this. You're being confronted 
in a very emotional, hostile way. But what I'm, tr the, what I'm arguing in all this talk about apologetics and how we give an answer for the hope, this, this is an example. Somebody just challenged the hope that he has, which is based on the Word of God. So how do you give an answer in grace and humility and meekness like First Peter says? The way to do that is with what I've been arguing is, is with wisdom. Wisdom comes from a lot of time growing and, and maturing. Now, what, what Beisner did was he looked at the um, uh, person who had written, looked up the person who had written the editorial and discovered that it was, uh, he, he searched the Internet and he found that uh, the author of this was a community therapist and a member of a church in Rockford. Elsewhere, he had written that he's committed to a, quote, a way of talking and listening and a philosophy of life called nonviolent communication. Hmm. In which, quote, everybody wins and people's needs are met more often. A way of living out the vision of a kingdom of heaven Jesus talked about. So what he did was he just did some research on who this person is, what they'd written about, what they stood for, and, and now he's got a fulcrum. He's not going to have to hit the guy over the head with this is th these are all the facts and everything and blah, blah, blah. He's going to just use this fulcrum to turn the guy's energy against him. And so he emailed him, and he said, Grace and peace to you in Christ. I hope this email will pave the way for us to achieve mutual understanding that will honor our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I wanted to reach out in the spirit you expressed as a community therapist seeking to achieve peace and reconciliation. See what he's doing here? He's saying, okay, this, you, 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 you're in print. You have uh, committed yourself to this path. Let's do it. I wish you'd reach out. I wished you had reached out directly to me first to get a better grasp of who we are, what we think, and why. Let me try to clarify some of that for you. We don't deny climate change. Climate change is real. See, he's start, now he's starting to introduce some facts. He goes through, through a few facts and, and links him to several major papers and articles. And he says, we're always striving to integrate the insights of a biblical worldview, theology, and ethics with excellent science and economics, which is why each of our major papers have been written and reviewed by properly credentialed scholars in theology, science, and economics. So this is, this is his approach. And he pointed out that their donations come mostly from private people, not from big oil. You can look at the records, all of this. And he corrected some of the other false statements uh, that were in the um, online hit piece. And then he said, I can't help thinking that you, as both a Christian and a community therapist, quote, committed to a way of talking and listening and a philosophy of life called nonviolent communication, through which everybody wins and people's needs are met more often, blah, blah, blah. He says that you, because you say this, you would welcome the opportunity to practice that in how you relate to the Cornwall Alliance and me. So I invite you to call me at, gave him information, let's talk. Together we can do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before our God. So the guy wrote back the next day and said he'd be glad to talk and um, asked him what he thought about a carbon tax, and he replied, blah, blah, blah. And he said, uh, wouldn't it be wonderful testimony in the 
uh, shalom-making work of our Lord Jesus, if, if what began with what you wrote about me in your column could lead not to continued hostility, but to the two of us and then expanding circles from us, listen carefully to each other, understanding each other's uh, reasoning. So, anyway, the bottom line is that this group shows up at the talk. And they're, they don't show up with a lot of placards and everything. And during the uh, question and answer, they're asking him uh, various questions that came up. And um, everything went fine. And then he, he said, instead of hitting them over the head with facts, he said, I asked them two, he, he asked them two questions, and he didn't give them the answer. Notice how wise he is in this. He he asked these questions, and he said, I'm not going to tell you the answer, but you can find it. Just look at the Internet and find out the answer to these two questions. He said, number one, he said, you're very concerned about climate change and energy policy, and and let's let's investigate this. He said, number one, how much did Obama's EPA say full implementation of the clean power plan would reduce global average temperature? When they passed all of that, how much did they say it would reduce global average temperature? And second, how much would full implementation of the Paris Climate Agreement reduce global average temperature after full implementation throughout this century, and what would it cost? Isn't that interesting? Okay, if you don't know, the answer to the first question, how much did Obama's EPA say that full implementation would reduce global average temperature? Betty's got it. Zero. Zero. See, facts are important. You're what he's doing strategically is he's pulling the rug out from under them, but in a, in a way that is allowing them to find the information themselves. He's not running in there to tell them, see, you're wrong. See, that's how a lot of us would do that. These are the facts. Go read this. No, he's saying, answer the question. Go look it up. Find it out for yourself. And... Um, answer the question is, if you fully implement the Paris Climate Agreement, how much would that reduce climate change? And the answer is three-tenths of a degree Fahrenheit. That's over a century. Three-tenths of a degree Fahrenheit at a cost of 70 to $140 trillion. That's somewhere between $23 trillion and $46 trillion per tenth of a degree. And that's all it would do. Isn't that interesting information? So that's what he's done and um, so this conversation is going to continue because what we see in what we're looking at in Genesis 3 is that the purpose of the confrontation is change, not to prove I'm right and you're wrong. It's not to win the argument. God is presenting this information to Adam and Eve in order to get them to change. He's asking questions to expose what is going on there? So, a fourth thing that we see is um, that God asked this question to expose Adam's unbelief and rebellion, to get him to understand that. Now, now this isn't your read this tract and answer these four questions, and then we're going to get you to heaven. 
Now, some people that will work, but there's a lot of people for which that will not work. Evangelism and giving an answer for the hope that is in you is not a cookie-cutter process. It involves something messy called a relationship and talking to people and being patient and kind and caring and being willing to be involved in that conversation for the next four decades of your life. Some of us don't have that long, but you understand the point. Fifth, God's question to Adam assumes an intellectual capability on the part of a fallen creature, on the part of a fallen man. It's not assuming total inability. It's assuming some ability to understand that God exists and what the moral and spiritual implications are and what the solution is. Sixth, they were able to identify who God was even in unbelief. When God shows up, they're not like, who are you? They knew exactly who God was, and they understood it in a moral and ethical way, just as Isaiah did when Isaiah is has that vision, and he's before the throne of God, and he says, Woe is me, a man of unclean lips. To perceive the righteous God is to understand that we're not. It's, it's inherent in the confrontation. So they're able to identify who God was, even in unbelief, and to know there were consequences to their actions. Okay, that's the application. So this means to some degree the fallen human, as some realization of his situation spirit has, that should be, the fallen human has some realization of his situation, spiritual death, and the reality that he is under condemnation. The unbeliever knows it within him, Romans 1, 18 to 21. The God of the Bible, he knows it's not just a God, but He's the creator of the world. He only makes it a God because he's suppressing the truth of the God in unrighteousness. He understands that the world is controlled by God's providence. God's in charge. At the core of our being, we know God's in charge. And just above that, we're trying to suppress it and put it in the cellar of our thinking, close the door, put a padlock on it, wrap it in chains, tie it up, bury it, put everything we can on top of it so God can't get out. But we know it's there. The world, another implication, the world is a witness to the non-saving grace of God. All of this is part of it. Man, We know man is responsible for evil, that there's a need for God and man's failure to honor God. This is what Van Til unpacks from understanding Romans 1 and understanding uh, Genesis 3. Okay, that's a lot. Okay, now I'm not going to leave that slide up so everybody can get it down because I've got to move to the next slide. Furthermore, seventh point is they took actions to remedy their situation on their own. See, that's what happened back in verse verse nine, 7 and 8. I said three, uh, 310. It's 3, 7, and 8. That's a mistake. 3, 7, and 8. They took actions and verse 10 reveals that. Uh, Adam says, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. 
So they're, they're aware of their strategy to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now, even if they say they're not, you and I know when we're talking to the unbeliever that he does. That gives us an edge, as it were. And we also know the Holy Spirit's involved. Eight, man's explanation was already slanted. It's the woman you gave me. That's the problem. It's not only her problem, it's you gave her to me. It's ultimately, he's blaming God. Man's explanation, um, furthermore, in verse verse, uh, 10, when he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. He doesn't talk about, I ate the fruit. I realized I was naked and I I tried to solve the problem myself. See, he's, he's ignoring some facts and just giving some other facts. That's typically, so what we can do in a conversation is expose the facts that are not being addressed. And then we see that God used historic facts, evidences, to expose Adam's sin, rebellion, and responsibility. In verse 11, God said, Who told you that you were naked? Notice he's asking another question. He didn't say, Yeah, you're naked. And look what you did about it. God is asking questions. Who told you that you were naked? Have you ever eaten? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? So his questions are designed to uh, validate the evidence and to bring out the issues of Adam's sin, uh, rebellion, and responsibility. Tenth, God's questions expose their already present spiritual death and separation from God. He's helping them to self-discover that they're a sinner and separated from God. It's not just a matter of, of telling them this is what the Bible says. It says what's, what's going on. Eleven, I only have 12 points here and then we'll wrap. God then outlined the consequence of the spiritual judgment. And that's the what we commonly call the curse from verse 14 down through verse 19. God says these are the consequences of the spiritual judgment. So, in, well, I've got 13 points. 12, the unbeliever is not in neutral ignorance, but a willful ignorance. Adam's not neutral. He is willfully ignorant, and he is suppressing already from the, from the get-go. So what we see is God takes the initiative in grace, and we can be part of God's initiative when we're witnessing to people. Isn't that wonderful? That just amazes me. Now, we all have opportunities, and we say, oh, I'm just too busy. And what we're doing is we're missing out on the opportunity to be part of God's process in bringing somebody to the gospel. We can be a part of that. God is taking the initiative, and he takes it through the intermediate means of believers in witnessing. So we can be part of that process of exposing unbelief and bringing the unbeliever to faith. So when you get to apologetics, it's not just about some sort of philosophy or thinking in terms of really abstract ideas, but it's ultimately grounded in how do we give an answer how do we talk to unbelievers? How do we do it in a way that exposes their unbelief in a way that is designed to bring them to a point of, of, of change, a point of turning to God? How do we do that in the way that God the Holy Spirit can use? 
the next, my, not the next slide, but one or two slides later is John 16, that God the Holy Spirit has come and he is working to convict the world in terms of, of uh, righteousness and judgment and death. This is what God the Holy Spirit is doing. And so we can become better at it. We're never going to be perfect, but we're going to be better at it. We shouldn't try to excuse sloppiness because, well, look at what goes on in the world. God can still use it. But we should constantly be improving our own ability to communicate to unbelievers, not to mention everybody else. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight. Help us to think them through. May God the Holy Spirit challenge us. And as we have learned this, we're going to get opportunities to apply it in talking to unbelievers. And we pray that we can be calm, that we can be relaxed, not impatient, not jump in there wanting to prove ourselves to be right, but that we put into practice these things that we are learning, that we are following the examples that you give in Scripture so that we can be uh, obedient and faithful and that you can use it to bring people to Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.